Hello and welcome to this video. Today we're going to be analyzing a video that Jordan Peterson recently made on a podcast with Joe Rogan. He, in this uh, video, he talks about the relationship between truth and the Bible and how the Bible is a fundamental part of Western civilization. I think this is a fascinating discussion. And in this section of the interview, I think that not only does he touch upon interesting things about the Bible, he also talks about interesting sociological, cultural, and philosophical ideas, which we will be touching on in this video. So make sure you watch to the end and let's get our headphones on and get right into the video. If categories just dis dis dissolve, especially fundamental ones, the culture is dissolving because the culture is a structure of category. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Right. So and in fact, culture is, a culture is a structure of category that we all share. So we see things the same way. Well, that's why we can talk. I mean, not exactly the same way because then we'd have nothing to talk about. But roughly speaking, we have a bedrock of agreement. Uh, that's the Bible, by the way. Essentially, what he's saying is culture is a structure of category. And I think that this is a very interesting idea because it ties in a Wittgensteinian ideas of what it means to be or what languages are. Now, I'm not really sure whether this is exactly what uh, Jordan Peterson is referring to. I'm not sure about his familiarity with Wittgensteinian philosophy, though I do think that the idea of Wittgenstein, at least lateral Wittgenstein, his uh, language games is very interesting here because, of course, in, in Wittgenstein's language games, what you see is that a lot of people are approaching language or approaching interactions with each other. In fact, society as a whole is a result of these games which we all agree on. And when you have games, you have rules. And although you might approach these rules from different perspectives, you at least start off from a similar understanding, a similar foundational belief. And that's what he calls the Bible. And... Of course, to illustrate, Wittgenstein uses chess. You're, you're all playing chess. The, the knight's moving in a certain way, or your king can only move in a certain way. The queen is can move in a certain way. You, the both players agree on these certain rules, but their approach, what are they, what openings do they use? Queen's gambit, whatever opening they use, depends on how you are approaching the game. It depends on how you are trying to play the game. And and that's the same language as he said. It's like, well, culture, society as a whole is based on these fundamental games. You have two people interacting with, with each other based on these fundamental concepts, these fundamental categories. And when you have these fundamental categories, then you can build up and have the discussion, have the, the intercourse about these certain issues. And, and a good example of this would be when you're discussing things with each other in philosophy, when you're discussing things about politics. Although you may have different perspectives, you have to have a fundamental grounding of the truth. For example, if you're looking at one side, you have, maybe you have someone who's an atheist and then you have someone who's a Christian, right? They're having this discussion. Well, if they both held different standards about what it is that they're fundamentally working towards, then there wouldn't actually be any point to them having a discussion. For example, if the atheist was only focusing on, well, what purely stems out from science and then the Christian saying, well, not everything has to be based on science or what you can prove in the world. Well, then they're never going to um, match and they'll never find an agreement no matter how much you try to discuss and they're going to end up talking past each other. So that's why it says, well, culture and in fact, society and discussion in general are fundamental categories is precisely because you have to get the fundamentals correct in order to build up upon it. So now let's turn to what he says about biblical history. So I just walked through the Museum of the Bible in Washington. That was very cool. It's a very cool museum. So the structure, that's what the Bible Yeah, that's what provides. I figured out. I, mean, I just figured this out this week. So it was a cool, it was a cool thing to walk through because it's, it's chronological. They have one floor, which is the history of the Bible. Mm. It's not exactly that. It's really what it is, is the history of the book. Now, in many ways, the first book was the Bible. I mean, literally, because 
at one point there was only one book, like as far as our Western culture is concerned, there was one book. And for a while, literally, there was only one book, and that book was the Bible. And then before it was the Bible, it was a, you know it was scrolls and it was writings on papyrus. And but it was we were starting to aggregate written text together, and it went through all sorts of technological transformations. And then it became books that everybody could buy, the book everybody could buy, and the first one of those was the Bible. And then it became all sorts of books that everybody could buy. But all those books, in some sense, emerged out of that underlying book. And that book itself, the Bible, isn't a book; it's a library. It's a collection of books. Now, I think that this is a very interesting point in regards to the nature, the history of the Bible. And of course, when you're looking at the Bible history, you, you realize immediately that it's not just a book. It's not just one single book. And that's one of the misconceptions a lot of people have about the Bible. This is my Bible here, right? A lot of people look at that and say, well, one person wrote this book. Because we're used to having books written by only one person, one author, and having it together. But in fact, if you look at it, the Bible is made out of many different letters, many different books, many different writing styles. For example, if you look at the book of John, or, and compare it to Genesis and compare Genesis to one of the letters of Paul, what you do see is that you have a lot of different writing styles and different perspectives of what it means to be God and the divine. And when you have a lot of these different perspectives, you have to read the entire Bible in order to understand the different perspectives that different people have towards Christianity. A good example of this would be when we look at the tradition of the Bible, the codexes. When we look at the codexes, we see that in the Bible, we didn't have just one Bible all at once together. It was through different times, different places, people, scholars in the past collected different books, different texts, different scriptures, different scrolls together in history to create these codexes. Like, for example, Codex Sinaiticus, which was written uh, 1600 years ago. And this is found in St. Catherine's Monastery right now. And it's one of the most complete co collections of the Bible. There you see almost a complete collection of the New Testament. Old Testament is a bit more um, murky. Parts are a bit missing in the Old Testament in the Codex Sinaiticus. But... In general, you do see almost a fully complete collection of the Greek Bible, and that's phenomenal. And then you could turn to similar uh, collections of the Bible, like the Codex Alexandrius or the Codex Vaticanic Vaticanus. I, I can't pronounce this very well today, but there are different of these codexes which collect different scriptures, and you put them together, and you're like, well, which ones of these are correct? Which are the correct texts here? And then you put them together, put them, measure them against the different scriptures or different fragments that we have in the Bible to get what the Bible we have today is. This Bible is not just one Bible which was got together, it was a lot of different Greek Hebrew fragments and scriptures which were collected, accumulated together to form the Bible we live in. And, and as a result, when we we're seeing the Bible, we we're looking at a depth of church and Christian history and Jewish history put together into one. And that's the perspective of the Bible. It's not just one book. And that's why it's important to read the entire Bible in order to get a full perspective of Christianity. Now let's continue watching this where he talks about the meaning and text. So in any case, we were talking about meaning in text because we were talking about translation and the problem of understanding text. And Jim said, the meaning of words is coded in the relationship of the words to one another. And the postmodernists make that case that all meaning is derived from the relationship between words. That's wrong because, well, what about rage? That's not words. And what about moving your hand? That's not words. So it's wrong, but, but part of it's right because the meaning we derive from the verbal domain is encoded in the relationship between words. So, so now then you think, well, let's think about the relationship between words. Well, some words are dependent on other words. Some ideas are dependent on other ideas. I do think that this is a very interesting idea. It's like the relationship between meaning and text, meaning and words. And in face value is correct. What he's saying is that the meaning of different words is coded in their relationships with one another. And that's exactly what we're doing right now when we're talking, the sentences that we're making. I am happy is a relationship not only of the meaning of the individual words, but you put them together before they are, they have a meaning. You look at I, you look at am, and you look at happy separately they don't make a meaningful statement. If you only say I, I, I all the time, then tomorrow you say am, am, am all the time. 
and then on Thursday you said happy, happy, happy all the time, no one's going to get what you mean. You're going to be speaking nonsense. But if you put them together at once, then you produce meaning. So in some sense, the meaning of sentences comes towards the relationship of the words. However, at the same time, this is not everything in um, the in the world. Uh, Wittgenstein had a theory, his early works, he said, well, language is almost everything in the world. Everything we conceptualize is through the mode of language. But then that's not necessarily the case, as Jordan Peterson points out. It's like, well, describe to me the sunset, right? A beautiful sunset. You're, you're on a cliff, you're looking over a sea and the, the sunset. You say, describe to me the sunset. You can't. You could say, well, yeah, that the colors are beautiful, whatever, seas, seas raging under the wind and the sun is... It's crimson, it's red, it's it's phenomenal, right? But you can, you can have that in your mind, but that is not explaining everything in what you experience. Your experience is not directly paralleled or it's not exactly reflected to the meaning of the word. That's kind of what you're thinking about, right? There's a lot of things which you can describe with words, but there's a lot of the massive realm. In fact, perhaps more than 70% of what we experience cannot be reduced to words. And, and you can look at like nonverbal and verbal communication. That's only one part of the discussion. Now, now, what I think is even more interesting here, perhaps, is the idea of the idea that the connection between words and ideas, because he says, well, these words are foundational and some certain words are based on some other words, right? Then he also says, well, ideas have a similar structure. And I think that that is a very interesting kind of connection between words and ideas, because, well, you think, well, what are words? Words aren't just words. They refer to a significant depth of understanding beneath them. When you say a certain word, you're speaking about ideas. And the same way, and names are perhaps the words which represent this the most, right? I say a Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky itself has so much connections to it in, in such that when I say Dostoevsky, it connects to the brothers Karamazov, the idiot, politics, philosophy, religion, all these different concepts are tied into one word. And in the same way, when you say maybe, when you talk about another word, maybe Jesus, you're not only talking about Jesus, you're talking about the depth of understanding which is surrounding the life and death of Jesus, the message of love, peace, and a connection. That's why when I say, well, be like Jesus, it's not just three words put together, but rather it's a depth of history, tradition. And in fact, the entire Bible is almost encapsulated within the phrase, be like Jesus. And that's why words have ideas. Words and ideas are almost one and the same. Your words are representation of ideas. When you mix them together, you have a similar relationship. Now let's look at his final part about the Bible being fundamental. The more ideas are dependent on a given idea, the more fundamental that idea is. By de that's a definition of fundamental. So now imagine you have an aggregation of texts in a civilization. You say, which are the fundamental texts? And the answer is, the texts upon which most other texts depend. And so you put Shakespeare way in there in English because so many texts are dependent on Shakespeare's literary revelations. And Milton would be in that category and Dante would be in that category, at least in translation. Fundamental authors, part of the Western canon, not because of the arbitrary dictates of power, but because those texts influenced more other texts. And then you think about that as a hierarchy, okay, with the Bible at its base, which is certainly the case. Now imagine that's the entire corpus of, li of linguistic production, all things considered. Now how do you understand that? Like, literally, how do you understand that? The answer is, you sample it by reading and listening to stories and listening to people talk. You sample that whole domain, you build a low-resolution representation of that in your, inside you, and then you listen and see through that. And so it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of truth. And I think this is, I think this is not only literally the case, factually, I think it can't be any other way. It's the only way we can solve the problem of perception. I think that this is a fascinating um, part, and I think it's a very interesting thing. The Bible is fundamental. It's the most influential work in, in modern history. I think that's definitely the case, because if, you, if you're just judging and looking how different tra traditions and works 
or in history, it's not just Western culture, I don't think. I think even in Eastern Europe, in the, in the Russian Orthodox, especially with Dostoevsky, right? You could stem most of modern Russian writers and, and you can almost summarize that down to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky as well is based on fundamentally Christian teaching. So what you do see then is almost the entire history of philosophy, apart from maybe Chinese philosophy and Japanese, and and that's perhaps a different uh, room for discussion, but you see most of Western um, tradition, culture, plus the, the works found in the Eastern Orthodox, maybe, and that's how you want to translate to Eastern Europe. You have that and you summarize it down to the Bible. And you say, well, the Bible is the most fundamental idea, and I don't think that that's deniable. Shakespeare is deeply into, influenced by the Bible and, and the Christian ideas, the motifs in the Bible, same with Dante and all these other of thinkers that he is referring to. Now, he also says that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. And a lot of people might look at it, critics of Jordan Peterson might say, well, that's just sophistry. And I get where they're coming from. It does seem quite weird to say this is a precondition for the manifestation of truth. What exactly does that mean? I think that what it does show is that, well, in order to reach the truth, you have to approach it from the perspective of the Bible in the sense that the values that are provided by the Bible, the structure that the Bible provides for human existence, for human thought, is, present, is, is precisely the structure in which it values truth the most and makes people focus on truth. Because Nietzsche questions this very, very well. He says, like, where exactly does the idea of truth come from? Is it necessarily the same as a will to power? A lot of people like to read Nietzsche as this proclaim, a, a philosopher who proclaims the truth all the time. But I don't think that's necessarily the correct way to read Nietzsche, but rather to say, well, the, the truth, will to truth is a subset of the will to power. But where exactly does this will to truth come from? You look in history, it does seem to come from the Bible, the Christian idea. And you may say, well, the Greeks suggested that truth was the ultimate goal first. But that's not exactly the case. If you look at Plato, his theory of forms, that is, I think that view of the world represents truth, not as the ultimate goal, but rather that truth is the divine in which humans come from, but rather that truth is not accessible by humans in the earthly form, such that the truth is detached. And I think that that's the, the beauty of the Christian message. It's the idea that through Christ, you are able to directly interact with God. You're di able to directly interact with the divine. And it's through the death of Christ that man can be reconciled with God is the solution to the Platonic idea that, well, the truth is forever separated from humans through the world of forms, this, this imperfect world of forms. But rather, this in Christianity, you have God and humans humans being able to directly interact with the divine. And that, that interaction is precisely what, what the truth is. And it's, it's like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes from me shall not perish. It's precisely the idea that when you interact through truth, you are able to interact with the divine. So that is kind of my thoughts about this video. I hope you enjoy this analysis. If you have any questions or you want me to develop on anything I've said today, let me know in the comments below and I'll happily make those videos for you. Like always, stay safe, my friends. See you soon. Thank you for watching and goodbye. God bless and I'll see you next one.